Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. When most of us stand up a new network, it's a big time-consuming project that often takes many weeks or months, and new networks, hey, they don't come along every week, right? So we, we make a big deal out of it. We're gonna go through several design iterations, and we're gonna modify the requirements as different teams pop up with their special requests. We're gonna, we're gonna plan for capacity and redundancy and resiliency, and we're gonna revise 15 times, and, and that's all before we order the equipment because we've really gotta get that bill of materials as right as possible the first time, lead times being what they are. All right. Now, imagine you're standing up a new network, but it's not for a facility where it's gonna be installed for years. It's for an event where it's gonna be installed for days. The network still has to be robust and high capacity because it's gonna be supporting hundreds or thousands of attendees at the event who need to be in touch with their workplaces and social media constantly throughout the event. Joining me to discuss this scenario, building temporary networks for events, is Jim Troutman, Jason Davis, and Alex Latsko. And I'm going to have each of these gentlemen introduce themselves briefly and going around the table. Uh, Jim, uh, you first. Hey, I'm Jim Troutman. I am most recently an advisor to the Maine Connectivity Authority, where the uh, folks dealing with all the federal broadband money. And uh, I've also knocked around in the ISP business in Maine and New England for 30 years at this point. So Maine is in the state of Maine here in the United States. And uh, what events have you worked on, Jim? I have worked on a number of events uh, over the decades, uh, all sorts of uh, small networking events, uh, conferences, uh, some outdoor events, uh, one, one set on a 30-acre farm. Um, that was interesting. Um, done all sorts of things with, uh, with events. Great stuff. Okay, next up is Jason Davis. Introduce yourself. Hey there, I'm Jason Davis. I'm based out of uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. I work for Cisco Systems, and in that company, I'm a distinguished engineer. I'm part of our developer relations team, which you may have heard of called as the DevNet program. I do a lot of our uh, Cisco live events in the U.S. and Europe, and these are very, very large events. Uh, we just came away from Las Vegas a few weeks back where we had about 16,000 attendees at our event. Great stuff. Thank you, Jason. And then Alex Latsko. I'm Alex. I live in New Hampshire. I'm physically pretty close to Jim, the principal architect at a company called Deft. And I've been doing meatball networking since the mid 80s. <laughs> meatball networking. It reminds me of a mash meatball surgery where they were uh, basically you do what you can with what you've got and make it work out as best as it can. That's where it comes from. Got it. Okay. Well, if you're in New Hampshire, I'm in New Hampshire too. And uh, I don't know how close we are, but maybe we got to get together for lunch sometime, Alex. All right, uh, gentlemen, we're going to have a free-flowing conversation here about event networking. Now, I can think of at least three entities that are involved in an event. We got we got the sponsoring company organization. We got some kind of an events company that's probably involved. And then there's the facility owner, wherever the facility is uh, that is hosting the event they're going to be involved in some way too. So when it comes to the network installation, trying to get this thing set up, who does the network team for the event primarily interact with? It's a three-way split. And usually 
the network team will start with the sponsor to figure out what they want. My view on this is slightly weird because when I started doing this, it was for the original Interop back in 1988, where the sponsor and the network team were the same. And the venue just said, here, just try not to break anything. And we took it totally from there. Fast forward a whole bunch of years, and the network team is usually a contractor at this point, generally has a lot of relationship with the venue. And unless the sponsor wants to do something really interesting, uh, writes a check. Hmm. Now, Jason, you just came off of a Cisco Live. You would have been in the Mandalay Bay Conference facility. Who, uh, who do you Correct. interact with there? Well, we're, we're interacting with Mandalay Bay's own IT support staff, uh, but we're such a large venue and event that we're bringing in our own staff in and acting as our own agent. So uh, we, we end up working a lot with the service provider to get our connectivity to the internet. So in years past, that was CenturyLink and they now call themselves Lumen, right? So uh, we're, we're using the venue and their wiring, but you know we're bringing in a lot of our own equipment uh, we end up having to work with various unions for getting up into the ceiling space to put in access points and an aluminum strut, uh, electricians for bringing in all of our big guns uh, equipment. We have essentially a 20-foot shipping container that's our data center that uh, allows us to connect into the, the internet from on, on-prem. But, but in theory, the uh, the facility owners and the folks that know the existing wiring that you're going to be able to take advantage of, for example, they're pros mm-hmm. that deal with events coming and going all the time. And so is it not that painful or can it be painful? It's it very painful. For us, it depends because if we're going into a venue and they're using competitor gear, we're not going to do Cisco Live on you know, HP Aruba, we're going to bring in our yeah. own equipment. So if you go to our event and you see like the first year, we might be there some aluminum strut poles with access points all hanging out in the hallways. That means that venue has either really old Cisco equipment that we're not going to showcase or they're using competitor gear and we want to show off our stuff. Um, if you go into our event, you don't see those poles. It means that we've taken over their Wi-Fi and it's a reasonable you know, next generation type equipment. And we might just move all their APs over to our own wireless LAN controllers hmm. and then boom, we're up and running really quickly. Hmm. Now, Jim, you, you said kind of cynically that it's very painful. Uh, tell us a story. Well, it, it certainly can be. I mean, different size venues have different levels of capability. Uh, I have worked in venues where like, well, we don't have an internet connection. Um <laughs> And, and there isn't one and having to actually engineer and work with a local uh, LEC or an ISP to build a connection to the venue in preparation for the event. That's our um, experience in Europe mostly. Yeah. Uh, I've also seen uh, there's a wide variability and competency level of hotel IT. Some of the hotel IT vendors um, it's, it's very hard to communicate with them. Uh, I had an event where we literally, we, we gave them all sorts of information about, we need this drop in this room and this, this patch panel number. We even had their jack numbers. They still couldn't do it. 
we literally had to have a technician on site and physically walk around to every jack and point at it and say, please give us connectivity here. Um, and it still and it still took two days. And, and that's when you're speaking the same language fluently. Hmm. Uh, Carrying your own cable testers, too, to make sure that you're proving what they can do. Sometimes uh, that fiber hasn't been used in a long time and it's really bad. OM1. <laughs> uh, are you guys old enough to remember MIC connectors hmm. with OM1? But uh, th- things in our normal toolkit involved two-way radios, because you got to be able to talk to people. Uh, sometimes cell phones just don't do it. Uh, TDRs, both copper and fiber. A couple of cheap uh, cable mappers and a couple of really high-end uh, cable analysis boxes for copper because... There's nothing quite like a split pair 400 feet down a Cat 6 to really break things hmm. and be hard to track down. When you uh, go to a patch panel somewhere and it gets mispunched, a lot of time is spent in diagnostics once you get everything in. Um, I also agree that it takes a whole lot of fiber to make a solid wireless network. Hmm. It helps if the venue has some and you don't have to draw walls to put it in. Alex, you're, you're reminding me of a, a patent that I filed and, and was awarded several years ago, which was a, around a rapid provisioning in a dynamic environment. Because when you go out there and you see a wall jack or a floor pocket, you don't know where that thing's going. And so being a network management guy at heart, I'm kind of like, I got to reverse the equation because normally I'd have to know what switch and port I'm trying to configure. But all I have right now is a wall plate or a floor pocket. And I don't know where it is. It could be on a different floor mm. than the one I'm on. So I came up with this uh, process and procedure that essentially used Raspberry Pis with known MAC addresses. And as they got plugged in, uh, they would you know, send their MAC address into the switch. The switch would learn it and send a diagnostic packet back to my configuration management tool. That would look to see if there was an outstanding configuration request for Raspberry Pi 11 and then boom, yeah, configure that one for, you know, show network or testing facility keynote or something like that. And it was just flip the equation around to make yeah. sense of what you have. Um, Fox and Hound is also your friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not Fox News, but. Yeah. Okay. Uh, t- okay sorry. <laughs> uh, cable signal injector. Uh, and a tone tracer. Um, mm. LLDP is also my friend <laughs> because I'll plug something in and just start watching for LLDP broadcasts. CDP, um, if you're a Cisco network. <laughs> when you say tone tester, Alex, do you mean literally a tone tester like we'd use back in the phone days? Yeah, literally yeah. a tone tester. You can probably see it on the shelf behind me as a butt set. Yeah, yeah. They still work. And when no, you're they, doing. They, yeah, they, they still Copper. work, but they if you're if you're using a tone tester on a live network, you can blow things up, which is which is fun. You can, and I have. <laughs> yeah, but it's also if you shoot a um, LED down somebody's fiber that you don't know what's on the other end of, use a piece of paper to look for the red dot, not your eye. Don't don't stare down the end of the cable. 
<laughs> Boy, listen to all you guys with your listen to all you guys with your fancy like facilities that already have cabling. I, think, oh. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, and and switches. You you actually get to use switches. Geez, I usually have to bring everything. We have and Go both ways. <laughs> I, I've done it both ways. I remember one venue which I'm still constrained from naming that in order to put a wireless network into it. We started six months early with a contractor and literally blowing holes in the wall and putting the fiber plant in, in order to do it. And then we walked away from the fiber plant and said, it's yours now. Mm -hmm. Well, now who tells you what you're building? That is, you walk in there, you know, you're supporting an event, you know, there's a bunch of people, you know, they need internet access and some other stuff, but there's got to be, is there some event organizer that's telling you, I need you to build this network for me? Uh, yes and no. If it's a network event like the old interop or Cisco Live, then you have some clues what you're going to do. But if it's just a generic thing like, oh, Nanog or IETF to pull two out of the air, uh, they just want lots of wireless everywhere with high bandwidth and IPv6. So at that point, you're just working against, I got to put in the facility and nobody knows what they want, but they want it in all of these rooms. Well, Jason, like like Cisco Live, um, mm -hmm. we could see from the social media hub, you, we could look up and kind of see the access points up there with the lights. In fact, some of the guys that were sitting there were so knowledgeable about the specific access points that were hanging. They mm -hmm. knew from the light code. So, oh, oh, that one just went into beacon mode or, or whatever it mm -hmm. was and could yeah. comment on this. Party thing. mode, oh, too. Yep, that thing just, uh, yeah, yeah, party mode came up a few times. <laughs> So do, do you, um, you know, kind of like Alex was just saying there, kind of know from historically the number of people that have been around, kind of what you're up against and what to do? Or is it every new Cisco Live is uh, starting over more or less? We just came away from Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, and then we we're not there for two years. But before that, in 2019, we were in San Diego. So at least for Cisco Live in the U.S., we've been bumping around among a few different large venues because there aren't too many that can handle at our largest, 27,000 attendees. So San Diego Convention Center, Mandalay Bay in Las mm -hmm. Vegas, and Orange County Convention Center were the three that we tend to bounce around in the U.S. And over in Europe, Milan, um, you have Berlin, the CCB, and uh, Barcelona um, at the FIRA that we've been at for many years, and they do Mobile World Congress out there. So those venues we've had established relationships with and we get to use them maybe every two or three years, we'll kind of rotate among them. And uh, so we know what, what to expect. Now, coming up this year in Cisco Live Europe in January, February, we're going to be in Amsterdam. And that's going to be the first time that we've been in Amsterdam. We were supposed to be there earlier this year and then, you know, we got... Coveted. Well, it, it, and in theory, with in with the COVID as a backdrop, you're going to be in. It sounds like a new facility, but then also maybe fewer attendees. I, I know Las Vegas was fewer attendees than had been there historically. Right. We went down from twenty seven thousand attendees in uh, San Diego, twenty nineteen, to sixteen thousand thousand attendees in in Las Vegas a few weeks ago, and uh, that also impacted how much bandwidth and and traffic mm -hmm. we moved. Uh, we we went from a maximum of uh, 83 terabytes of traffic in five days of the event in 2019. This year, we only pushed uh, 63 um, because of the, the smaller number of people at the venue. Mm. 
And those are nice tiny shows in comparison to, say, Tokyo Interop and the Makahari Mesa, which had 160,000 attendees. Mm, back in the heyday of Interop. Yeah, you're going back in time there a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that was 2022. They're back up to full size. Okay. <laughs> so we're thinking of a different Interop conference than the one I was thinking of. All right. Well, uh, Interop Tokyo never really tapered down. Huh. Okay. Was a different team. And, uh, I have some friends who are still on it who sent um, the specs and was like, okay, they've got multiple 400 gig uplinks and they've got 150,000 people rolling through using it. And they're presumably being spread across more physical buildings just to contain that many people. They're not going to be under yeah. one roof. So yeah, more complexity. Yeah. But if I think back to something like the last of the big interops in the Las Vegas Convention Center, when it took the entire place and yeah. we pulled in three tractor trailers of uh, pre-configured cabinets and just deployed them and pretty much uh, four-walled in to use the theatrical expression. Hmm. Um, uh, ran fiber, cord walls. Ah, those were the good old days. <laughs> so uh, Jim, uh, where does the equipment come from? You had mentioned earlier that uh, everybody was lucky to have switches and cables and stuff. So where does the equipment come from? <laughs> well, it, it really depends on the event and, and there's all sorts of different events out there. And, uh, I mean, I, I've worked with events that literally had no idea what the technical requirements were. They just said, well, we want internet and, or we, we need to be able to video stream, uh, live stream all of the presenter sessions. And, uh, but they, they really didn't know what they were doing. Um, some events, uh, you know, they're looking for a relationship where they just rent all the equipment, uh, from, you know, either somebody like myself that might put it together or some other vendor, uh, some events like some of the, um, information security conferences that uh, I've worked with, uh, they actually get sponsorship from different vendors. And uh, like at ShmooCon with ShmooCon Labs, every year it's kind of uh, whatever shows up, different vendor, you know, we might have Palo Alto uh, most years for firewall, um, maybe Cisco for switches, but maybe it was somebody else for switches. Uh, and all this gear just kind of shows up and, and you have to work with it. It's, it's sort of like Iron Chef for networking. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, interoperability. Uh, that was the whole thing is interoperability, interoperability, and rentals. Sometimes you can find a VAR who has some stuff that's ready to ship to somebody, and you got a couple of weeks and you can get a short term rental. Mm. And you need opportunities like that, especially in the current supply chain issue. Uh, uh, um, imagining it's pretty tough to get a hold of pallets full of equipment unless you're working with a vendor who knows where stock is and can get it to that event for some amount of time as a sponsor. If you want to order yeah. it, I mean, you can't. Do you even know you're going to get it? Yeah. Yeah. It takes a long lead time. Uh, we, we were very close to having dual 400 gig links to Cisco Live in Las Vegas, and we ended up having supply chain issue and, and not being able to get all the optics. So we, we ended up backing down to what we knew we could get, which was 300 gig links. And still, you know, we didn't hit that much at all. And yet numbers like that blow civilians' minds. But when you're in the business, mm. it's just another pipe. It's, it's yeah. a numbers game. Yeah, it's just, it's math. How many people yeah. do I have using, you know, how much of a data stream over what period of time and what are my peak loads going to be? And then mm -hmm. you come up with some answer. This is what I need. Yeah. 
And one of the more interesting things is depending upon what you're doing, where you're doing it, sometimes you're actually going to say, okay, I'm just going to globally rate shape everybody. So I know what I can support. And for some things, you're just going to say wild west. Let's see how much we can push. See if Microsoft has a patch push that day and boom, all your attendees are now sucking down new updates. Yeah. One interesting thing that we learned though, is that people, physical bodies make a real difference for Wi-Fi in high density. Because a bag, bags of mostly water walking around the floor impact RF. Yeah. Yes. And that's why at a couple of events, we found the hard way that the place to put your access points was on the floor and under the chairs, the, under the chairs <laughs> and turn your power down as low as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, you've had all your kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, a turn off 2.4. Is that, is that the typical Wi-Fi design then these days you go five gig and uh, turn off the two, four, you don't, you don't keep two, four on because of someone walking around with an ancient phone or something. Yeah. At this point, if you can't deal with five gig, at least 10, don't bother because 2.4 is so saturated. Although Wi-Fi 6 changes that game dramatically. It, it took a few years of uh, collecting data to know, is it okay for us to move off 2.4, right? And yeah. I've got this dashboard I've been putting up for years in the NOC in our video display wall that would show a matrix of all the broadcast SSIDs we were doing against the, the wireless standards and how many user counts or device counts were in each one of those. In one year, we had an IPv6 only SSID, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you joined that, you weren't getting a V4 address. You were loving V6 only, (laughs) right? And so I was looking at this, the stats on this dashboard, and there was one user who was on uh, 802.11G and on the IPv6 wireless network. So we had to search him out because this was like, okay, there's somebody who's so forward thinking about protocols that they're only doing IPv6, but they're so frugal, they're using like 12 year old radio technology. <laughs> right. So, yeah. you know, we went and got them a new end USB, you know, dongle and said, here you go. Welcome to the 2000s, you know, and, and he was happy. So uh, this year we did actually turn off 2.4 totally um, because we were able to control it across the venue and we had some Wi-Fi 6 deployed at the Four Seasons Hotel next to our venue. So. Yeah. Another one, which is also kind of interesting, is we are looking at it from the drop side, so either copper or fiber drops, uh, lots of Wi-Fi. One of the things that I've gotten a lot of fun with recently is dealing with people who are providing commodity cell phone service mm-hmm. and making sure that whatever we're doing isn't going to stomp on or be stomped on by whatever infrastructure the uh, cell phone providers have in buildings. Mm-hmm. Since you have in some places, uh, and I am being very vague on names because I don't want to get in trouble, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but um, a very large provider who uh, puts leaky coax into places and wants to be sure they can have 10,000 people with LTE connections or 5G connections uh, can really scatter your uh, Wi-Fi. Well, you, you're just competing for for the same RF space, is what you're saying, and uh, and it's it can be difficult to do a channel plan because you don't own you're you're competing with all these other providers that are in the same space you're in. Well, not so much that you're competing with the other providers, which you are. I mean, hotels you can normally just say, okay, guys, turn off your stuff in this area. 
mm-hmm. uh, and don't try and stop on me. Um, no, the, the cell phone providers are in different bands, but how tight is the front end on your laptop Wi-Fi card? Well, it turns out that those $4 chips are horrible. They're sort of like um, aircraft radio altimeters for front-end rejection. They're, they're, they're bleeding over into the RF space, you're saying, not directly competing, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, yeah, there's radiation that's, that's impactful. Yeah. So yeah, the, the high-end access points, um, whether they be Cisco or Mist or Aruba or Ruckus or Xerus or whoever, have really nice filtering on the front end. It's the laptops that are horrible. Hmm. Hmm. I still have uh, 2.4 turned on in most environments, at least on some access points, not on all access points. Um, some of the venues that I've had to work with in the last few years, um, it was amazing how old the client devices were. Um, you know, like an agricultural fair, bunch of farmers uh, were looking at, you know, pretty old Android devices, a lot of stuff that really could only do 2.4 G and, and that was it. Um, and also, you know, 2.4 in an isolated area where you're not in urban setting and there are, there is nobody else around. It's going to get you a little bit further coverage than the 5.8 is. And if yeah. you can't have any APs as you need. Uh, the thing that I found is the most amusing for that is actually science fiction conventions with small uh, hucksters rooms where you go to buy stuff, uh, get your cosplay and vendors with antique um, 2.4 gigahertz credit card, dedicated credit card machines, which you've got a lot of bodies, bad traffic flow, a lot of people putting up grid wall, which acts as Faraday cages. Mm-hmm. and complaining that they can't make sales because their credit card machines can't connect. <laughs> I can see that grid wall on my mind's eye. Cosplay stuff hanging from it. Hey, why doesn't this work? Yeah. You get a couple of medieval reenactors who have uh, chain mail up. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Th- these are the things you run into uh. in the smaller venues that, I mean, let's put a division in there, which is, a lot of on-the-fly networking is done for smaller things. It's not all multi-thousand-person conferences. Um, when you're at something the size of a Cisco Live or an Interop, you've got a 30- or 40-person team. I went to a discussion by the guys who did Burning Man uh, about six, seven years ago, and there were five people on their team they had everything set up for zero touch provisioning. And as they pulled fiber out, they just plugged stuff in and went, okay, I'm live. Mm. Kind of the only way you can do that with a five person team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even with a two dozen person team, brutal automation is necessary. Yeah. You got 2 million square feet of conference space, 2300 wireless access points possibly. And 650 switches across the venue. It's, it's a lot of equipment to roll out. So. Uh, yeah, zero touch is the way to go. Zero, zero touch. Um, keeping your address plans uh, sane. Um, one of the great things about IPv6, if you're crazy enough, is obviously you can do BGP with uh, 
no addresses, I just uh, went local and you know, let the automation begin. Hmm. Uh, personally, I wouldn't do that because, well, I like to be able to troubleshoot stuff. <laughs> hey, Jason, you were mentioning at Cisco Live, you ended up instead of two by 400, I think you said three by 100. Mm -hmm. And that the conference didn't really touch that bandwidth so much, but, uh, but, but what if it had, what if three by 100 wasn't enough? Could you have gotten more? Yeah. The Lumen guys were right there on site with us. We had one of their techies working with us and had direct connection back in. So it was really a question of how would, how do we want to rate the link going back to their, their local pop. And we also landed in Denver and Sunnyvale, um, California, so we, we have these colos that we have our own flexibility about how we want to rate up if necessary. But Jim, it's not always that, that easy. No, that's, that's definitely a luxury. Um, I had one conference experience probably about 20 years ago where we actually did have fiber into the conference facility from a local ISP, but it was limited in what their total capacity was. And we started exceeding that capacity very quickly on the first day. And fortunately, due to some good personal relationships, we were able to get a cable modem from the local cable company provisioned and on-site and in-service that day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, if any of you have ever dealt with a cable company, that's a minor miracle uh, mm -hmm. in and of itself. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, Getting extra bandwidth is, is usually not something uh, that's available at the venues that I've worked in, or you have to plan for it. Uh, like I, I worked with uh, a lack with uh, this rural uh, event where uh, we, we actually worked very hard to make sure that they had dual diverse fiber campus and two separate internet connections and everything was completely separate. Um, and redundant for their event because they were, uh, because of COVID, they were not able to have their normal on-site large fair event. So they were doing uh, a virtual event with a, a full TV production studio on-site and live streaming everything. And, and you know, the concern was as well, what if that truck hits that pole during mm -hmm. the live event? What are we going to do? Uh, so we actually, uh, and, and, Thanks, uh, really, to the lack, uh, you know, Unity Telephone and, and Unity Maine to give them a shout out. Uh, they worked with us to uh, actually build separate diverse paths. Hmm. I think our problems have been less about the bandwidth and more about the electrical power we can, you know, get into the to the venue. And we've had transformers explode. Cooling. Um, we've had cooling issues. We, uh, you know, being in Orlando and Las Vegas, had to bring in one year. I remember. Uh, we first year that we ended up having cooling, where's the condensate going? Oh, well, we got this five gallon jug over here. Okay. Well, who's monitoring the jug, you know? And then, you know, after that first year when nobody monitored it and you get like two inches of water around all this 208 volt electrical equipment, that's power pigtails all over the place. You're just like, somebody's going to kill themselves. Um, okay, well, now we got to get a Raspberry Pi in here to monitor the, the water level and then let us know that it's time to go dump the, the water out. And, and we've been, you know, iterating through this process about how to make sure that we get rid of uh, water. Yeah. And uh, Something to take note of is that uh, Camwalk 1015s are actually watertight connectors. 
Um, you find that out the first time you see one under a puddle of water in a uh, <laughs> county fair someplace driving the stage lights. Interestingly, about 25 years ago, doing a job in the Moscone, we oh, could only God. get one. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead and laugh. We could only get one hard connection at uh, 10 meg. So we wound up shooting a 60 gigahertz radio off the roof of the Moscone across to where we could get a second diverse connection. That that's really surprised me because the Moscone Center, to those of you listening, this is a big conference venue in basically right in the middle of San Francisco. You'd think it'd be one of the most well-connected facilities around. It is now. And mm. you can thank a guy named and another guy named who dealt with that in 1998. Um and those guys are both still in the business, um, but uh, they came in and actually built a um, full IDF MDF fiber construction as a retrofit and then pulled um, diverse fiber paths in and got whole gigabit connectivity from, I believe it was Sprint and UUNet at the time. Hmm. And that's what they lit the uh, Moscone up with. Okay, that was 22 years ago. I find that that's often the case is that the event ends up driving the technical capability of the venue. And, um, and, and it's very rare. You have to get to like Mandalay Bay sizes where the venue is actually able to handle most of the events the way that the event wants it. So uh, oftentimes you got events that, you know, we, I've done things where we've built copper, we've built fiber and then mm. just given it. Yeah. To, to the venue. Hey, yeah. please, please don't get rid of this. We're going to need it next year. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they don't listen to you, though. Sometimes they <laughs> do. And um, I think it was 1994 supercomputing. Um, we worked with the San Diego Super, San Diego uh, Conference Center, uh, SDCC, and the supercomputing design team actually did the fiber layout, which the SDCC then had a contractor installed to spec, and they split the cost three ways. Um, so that's why there's now an effective, so you go to the SDCC and there's all the single mode you could possibly want because of something that was done 26 years ago. Yes, the fiber has been life cycled. All right. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor, InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. InterOptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. 
Jason, you were mentioning power and cooling challenges and everybody was nodding their head along with you. Okay, so power and cooling, you I mean, we think about PoE switches that are presumably feeding access points hanging off the end of them. Mm -hmm. um, so what's driving big, you know, power demands? Do you have, is there a lot of core gear that just is sucking down a lot of watts is kind of sitting in the middle of all this? What, what's the topology look like and where's all the power and cooling requirements coming from? Yeah, for for our large events, we're, we're essentially using the venue's wiring infrastructure but we're bringing in our own core in a 20 foot shipping container. And there's probably 10 racks of equipment in there with the, uh, okay. the NetApp storage, the UCS Hyperflex compute, our firewalls, our routers, our core switches, a certain distribution layer of switches in that container, right? And if you look up, you'll see a couple orange or yellow fiber cables going up to the ceiling and then peeling out to the, to the venues, uh, wiring closets, um, and then out to the, you know, the service providers. So we, we bring in the core of the network and run it there. Right. And if that goes down, that's the whole yeah. event, okay. right? Digital signage, you, testing utilities. So hundreds of kilowatts, pro probably not a, not a megawatt, but you know, kilowatts, maybe, maybe tens or hundreds of kilowatts. Yeah. Right. And then the, the keynote area with all of the AV equipment and lights and everything they're doing there. So we bring in some of that equipment. Um, mm. Right. So Jason, I have a question for you. When you're pulling in your TV truck for all intents and purposes, are you unloading that or is that a fully self-contained uh, plug in your three phase and put a drain hose on it? It's, it shipped pretty lightweight because of the floor. We we ended up taking a, an old shipping container, spray painting it Cisco blue, putting some plexi on the side so people could see it, and then having a hard cover which could then be pulled down when it was actually driven. But once we get there, we pull up the sides, we stick in the racks of equipment, shimmy in the the cooling gear, and uh, and then plug in the power and um, the network cables. And this last year, we we really had some some great intra rack uh, fiber connectivity. So it wasn't like stringing from one device to another device across three or four racks. It was everything contained into a rack to the top and then multi you know, fiber connectors between the racks. So it was pretty much everything in a rack was again, self-contained. And then once you got to the top, it was connected together and then bam, 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 you're done. That's a great th thought and segue is Preparation, full hot staging, and structured cabling will sure. save your bacon. Mm -hmm. At least for the core. But once you get out from you know distribution out to the rest of the venue and potentially even into the other adjacent buildings, uh, you mentioned San Diego Convention Center. We did one gig laser shots from uh, the main convention center to the Hilton and to the Hyatt because we had extended the Cisco Live network into those hotels. Mm -hmm. So... You know, there was no existing fiber between those, which really surprised me, but we ended up getting the connectivity by doing, uh, you know, laser shots across the the grass there and, and into that um, hotel. And, you know, right there next to um, the, the bay and everything, you got angry birds flying through and yeah. all that. So. Um, so let me take a tangential thought on that, which is... Um, Convention center hotels in Las Vegas are a unique critter because about comdex ago, all the hotels got together and put in dark fiber rings. 
Mm-hmm. So you can get from anywhere in Vegas to anywhere in Vegas. Um, yeah. Um, as Jason is pointing and saying, me, me, I was part of that job. Um, I helped with some some unification about the wireless across yeah. the MGM facilities there because I was able to show them of 10 years worth of Cisco Live wireless equipment that, you know, if you bring in this new hotel and it's running, you know, something essentially 802.11 N24, you need to be up, you know, farther up to AC and now Wi-Fi 6 because this last event that we just had, 97% of our attendees were on, you know, the latest or one gen back. So they can't yeah. be putting out equipment that's three or four gens old and expect a good user experience. Well, so that brings up this interesting thought of there are some times when you work with a venue, you just got to get the venue to shut down their own stuff, mm. which occasionally means doing the equivalent of paying corkage to bring a bottle of wine into a restaurant because you have to buy off the in-house AV and networking. Well, I, I want to talk about uh, the, the L2 and L3 design. We've been really focused on the physical stuff, which is perhaps the biggest logistical challenge. But then once you got everything plugged in, is the L2 and L3 design, is it is it even interesting or is it just kind of no. you know, awfully straightforward? It's pretty straightforward. Straightforward modular. <laughs> yeah. We're going to stand up some VLANs. We're going to sign some address space. We're going to put some DHCP servers out there. Um, is there? We're we're gonna we're gonna have some layer two VLAN space. I'm assuming just to kind of I don't DHCP know, snooping to yeah. you know prevent the jerks that are out there that are trying to run their own DHCP server, right? Yeah. Provide some protections for the other attendees from picking up address and other DHCP offered you know, options from them. So yeah, it's coming from us. You know, we've, we've learned things over the years, like don't put everything into that containerized data center, put some of that stuff out in the cloud. Like it used to be Cisco live.com was solely run and served from our authoritative DNS servers, which were with us on the UCS servers in our container. So when we shut down in San Jose, put them in a, a semi truck to go down to Las Vegas or all the way over to Orlando for three or four days of driving, that domain did not get resolved. And we said, you know, we could have the authoritative DNS servers in the colos at Denver and Sunnyvale, and then just have the caching ones on-prem with us. And that was something we probably learned six, seven years ago to- Um, 45.0.12.20, which was Mm interop.com, was sitting in a commercial facility in Sunnyvale for 24 years that I know of. And it was up all year. That was the authoritative. Mm-hmm. But moving around, then you also get those, those geolocation problems that sometimes you borrow oh. address space from, from some entity. It's like, well, this was last used in an event in Japan. And all of a sudden you're having an event in, in the U S and, and Google's like throwing all this other stuff at you. And you're like, Oh my goodness, how can we I, quickly get this pivoted back I, to yeah. the U S I've attended some <laughs> ETF events and I know that's, that's a thing that comes up, you know, yeah. ETF I, I attended in Canada and it very much thought I was in uh, somewhere in Europe, I think. Yeah. Uh, I will admit that the solution for that for interop is they had a slash 16 for Tokyo. 
and the slash eight for everything else. And for Nanog, which is my personal current uh, toy network, um, I have to update the geolocation for the slash 20 between each uh, event. So as soon as the previous event is over, update it for the next one. That gives it three months to propagate. So I have a story. Um, this took most of a day to figure out. So had an event. Uh, the event could not afford to purchase all new wireless access points to own them. And they were going to own them going forward. So we obtained some wireless access points off of, you know, that friendly site eBay and uh, set everything up. It's working fine. And then on the first day of the event, some of the vendors that were there for the Wi-Fi using their credit card processing, using Square as an example, using tablets, they kept saying, you know, Square won't let me do transactions. And uh, we'd go check, and they had perfect connectivity. Everything's working fine. What was happening was that we found out that a bunch of these access points actually came from somewhere in France. And Square was geolocating based on the AP's Wi-Fi Mac. May we? And n- <laughs> yeah, and not allowing those transactions to happen. And uh, the way to work around it was you had to enable enhanced GPS, uh, which, you know, if you're on a phone, that would normally happen. And the GPS signal would, over, you know, that geolocation would override. But again, you know, we had these vendors that had these really old tablets and they didn't have GPS built into them. So uh, we, we had to kind of scramble around and come up with some alternatives Um but that that took uh, several hours to get to the bottom of what was actually happening and why Square would not let these folks process these transactions. You know, one of the interesting things, and collectively we've got maybe 100 years worth of experience on this uh, call, is you know people. And when things like that happen, you start bypassing tier one, tier two. Uh, front ends and buy a bottle of scotch for somebody and say, I need this fixed now. I guess I have the benefit of, you know, we got the guys that wrote the code for the routing <laughs> protocol or whatever. It's like, how many CCIEs do I want to throw in on the knock here? So that's actually part of our issue is like, got to put a badge reader on the knock door because people just want to come in and, oh, hey, we want to help you out with this IPv6 thing and, and all that. And I appreciate, you know, having hundreds of Cisco employees there that have a deep experience in certain subjects. Uh, What's but- a CCIE? Oh, you're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Juniper guy. Yeah, that's fine. So it's JNCIE, but yeah. Um, I'm also a programmer, so if you want to call me JSON. Okay. Uh, uh, I uh, did there. Check yeah. out this JSON body, folks. Oh, you can't see it. All right. So. Um, <laughs> Talk to me about routing protocols. You know, layer 2 is not that exciting. We got some VLANs. We do the thing. I assume routing is going to be, we got some kind of an IGP, and then we need, maybe need BGP at the edge that we're announcing yeah. our address base to somebody uh, for our yeah. portable mm-hmm. event, that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, your choice of IS, IS or OSPF, depending upon which school you went to, uh, BGP for your upstream, uh, 
set your ROAs up ahead of time so they have a chance to propagate. Uh, that's always a fun one when you have to change your address block around quickly. And somebody says, oh, invalid ROA. That's always fun. Especially if you have two conferences which are going to be running back to back with the same block in different locations, which I've had happen. But Jason, even at a larger event, um, no, no particular drama with routing protocols. Not really. Uh, you know, we learn over time. Let's just do some real good addressing schemes, right? So we understand mm -hmm. year to year. This is the block where the knock services are, right? And we're always going to land syslog and netflow over here. Uh, and here are the private service blocks, right? That shouldn't be routable. Um, you know, DMZ addresses that you expect. So it, it tends to be pretty rudimentary and repetitive. There may be differences between the US and the Europe events because different service providers working with us and, and such, and then the size of the events, but we try to be pretty consistent. Um, and we know this event will grow and shrink depending on the attendee count over year. Oh, don't you guys have your own slash 15? Uh, yeah, we've got, <laughs> we've got our own address block that we use every year. Um, so both on the, I mean, we're using RC1918 internal, but, um, out external, we, um, we did, we did use public addressing probably 10 years ago internally, but we didn't see a lot of okay. benefit for that. Repeat after me, mm. less NAT, more V6. All right. I don't think anyone would argue with you on that, Alex. Yeah, if you no. can. Yeah, it's a, we love it, it tends towards simpler. <laughs> and and yeah. in, in the spirit of keeping it simple for an event like this and needing to be able to troubleshoot quickly, I assume there's no no use case for overlays. Like we're not sticking things in uh, in VXLAN end caps for any particular reason or anything like that, right? Well, you you opened up the question earlier. You know what drives some of your product choices and because we are a vendor specific event hmm. part of that is driven by product marketing and so they want to show off something like dna center and sda right well yeah we'll we'll allow that to happen but maybe it starts off in a very small corner of the venue where you know meet the engineer is Right. And it's just a, a meeting spot and there could be a couple dozen switches over there. So if that part has an issue, then it's just that segment versus blowing it out across the whole venue. Right. And there over years, you'll start to see, OK, this technology is something we can depend on. So, yeah, let's go ahead and, and deploy it the rest of the network. But we didn't do overlays all over Cisco Live. We did have it um, at mm -hmm. the venue as a tech showcase. No, what about something like private VLANs? Um, if I'm on a, the events SSID along with all the other attendees, can me and the other attendees just bug the crap out of each other doing port scans and trying to see who else out there and who's vulnerable? Is it pretty much the Wild West or is there any sort of security there protecting attendees from one another? There is, depending upon how big you are, and I have never done Cisco Live, sorry, um, but... Um, yeah, you tend to firewall certain things off and you just put uh, the usual uh, stupidity filters up at the edge of each uh, zone. 
Mac filtering, uh, tell your access points. You can only talk to these Macs from inside, so you can't go crosswise. Um, but after, I like to say, this is the first time we're doing this for 20 years, but the truth is you do develop some aggregated intellectual property and things that you do every time, no matter whose platform you're putting it on. So you drop in a, a set of filters, you drop in a routing paradigm so that it's collective knowledge over time. Yeah, you're just saying you, this is kind of we've done events this way in the past and or we learned a hard lesson during this one event. And so taking all that information forward, now we do events this way. This is the way we do things. Yeah. And I suspect if you took the people in this group, put us into a room, gave us each a test uh, about doing things and how you do them, you'd get really similar answers. So it depends on the event as far as like what your goals are. Um, some of the InfoSec con events that I've worked, we specifically have a kind of a Wild West VLAN and, and usually some sort of wireless network to go with it where anything goes. If you, and, and you are warned, if you get on this network, be prepared to be attacked um, because, because that's, that's what it's there for. Jim, that's kind of the point for yeah. some people. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but conversely, there's other networks which, uh, you know, more production oriented for the event. And um, and we we police those networks. And when we find somebody, you know, that's uh, wanting to do deauth attacks or, or, you know, just being a dink about things, uh, <laughs> we, we, we go find them uh, or we block them, uh, whatever we whatever we need to do. Uh, with that. And, and that includes, you know, traffic shaping and depending on the size of the pipe, sometimes you might have to say, you know what, we're just going to be blocking BitTorrent. Sorry. Um, mm -hmm. Traffic shaping protocols like, like a BitTorrent, or would you actually go after specific Macs or IPs of those, those uh, irritating people that yes. are attending the conference? All it, of the above. Yeah. I totally agree with Alex there. All of the above. Um, and, you know, I've also, over time, we've discovered uh, things that are more likely to fail, more likely to be the problem. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, most of the events, we find that uh, DHCP relay uh, from certain vendors just breaks after a certain point of scale. And the only reliable method that we found uh, particularly from the InfoSec events, is you put the DHCP server physically into every VLAN that it needs to, um, because mm -hmm. Relay just will not work reliably, um, and it will be maddening. Raspberry Pi zeros are your friend. Just little dropping little DHCP yeah, servers on a Pi. You saying, Alex? Yeah. yeah. Um, Dropping a little a supply chain problem right now, but yeah, they're good. <laughs> well, when, when you've already got 50 or 60 of them sitting in these cute little 3D printed boxes. Um, yeah, okay. I, <laughs> do I have one on my desk that I can pull off? I was no, just I looking at, at my, uh, my Kubernetes Raspberry Pi cluster up here. Yeah. Six of them. It'd be hard to do that now. It's expensive as they are. Yeah, my, my last Pi just turned into something to drive a 3D printer for my kids. Um, but yeah, so dist distributed um, 
either logically or physically. Uh, that's one of the places you do use overlays is if you pull a layer two channel back so you can just have 47 or 470 tags on a fairly heavyweight uh, server, um, basically spying on each uh, local channel. Hmm. Since, you know, um, VXLAN EVPN is table stakes for just about everything at this point. You get some interesting situations when you're being permissive with, you know, how much bandwidth and connectivity you have. Get those uh, DMCA takedown notices that, hey, you've got somebody here who's being a super node and sharing off, you know, this movie. It's like, wow, that movie hasn't even come out yet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so you go find that. User. Usually uh, we um, observe the person for a bit. We don't just walk right up to them, but we you know, <laughs> send yeah. one of our uh, minions out with a radio and say, yeah, you're getting close. And, yeah. Looking for somebody on a Mac and, you know, and they're right next to this restroom or whatever and sitting on a, sitting oh. on a chair and then, okay. And you politely ask them to stop and then yeah. you just continue to monitor them for and, the rest of the event until and, such time as you tell them to go. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that I'll do at large events is I got friends who work at the various CDNs. Mm -hmm. So I'll make sure that I've got the right mappings for CDNs so that I know at least um, the majors are going to do the right thing, um, which also what helps you a lot. If, if people are trying to pull big content out of a CDN, like uh, you know Netflix yeah. video stream or something like that, they're going to what, not send your IP block. You know, they're going to, they're going to traffic shape it on their end or something. Uh, no, they're going to optimize the traffic and, or, um, gee, wouldn't be the first time, say, Akamai has dropped a small service stack in at an event. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So that, that you're actually distributing whatever the content is locally. Yeah. Yeah. Not having to reach out across the pricey internet pipes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we all know people who work at all of those places and most of them have a good sense of humor and like to play as well. <laughs> Do you guys do anything to handle the, the chattiness of modern devices that share all the things and they're making MDNS announcements all the time and stuff like that? Do you do anything about that? Uh, keep them local. Uh, you, just, you, just, you, you contain, you don't uh, do any of the helpers or any of the bridging between, you just keep nope. all of that stuff in the VLAN. It is what it is. Everyone within the VLAN is going to see it. but Yeah, but otherwise keep it contained. Yeah. And actually, um, depending on what it is, we may filter at the uh, access point if the access points we're using are smart enough yeah yeah that typically won't allow uh clients to talk to each other on the access point layer mm -hmm. so that's not an issue yeah okay uh if you get somebody who's setting up a server then you sort of track them down drop a nuke on them <laughs> <laughs> now, every event, uh, anybody listening to this is uh, any event that they've, they've attended. There's been this time where the network is slow. Something's happening when, mm -hmm. uh, when, when you guys that are on the, that know what's going on, can t tell us what's going on. What happens when the network is slow like that in an event? Uh, sometimes it's a couple of hops out upstream hmm. where you're getting congestion. Uh, one of the important things is to keep your lines of communication with the attendees open. Uh, 
video display screens where you can pop up messages that says, we know this is broken, we're working on it, leave us alone so we can get it fixed. Um, uh, that uh, T thing that uh, a lot of people seem to use um, for real-time notifications, um, any of a number of other things, um, push notifications that you subscribe to as part of the event, uh, which is a um, swap card, I think it is, that a bunch of events use, uh, let you do push notifications to devices, which doesn't really help, but they're small and they usually get through, especially if you're originating them from inside the perimeter where things are still running quickly. I think being more on the network management and automation side, I'm really challenged to meantime to innocence, right? So I'm monitoring <laughs> the, the snot out of everything, especially as we push more services out to the cloud that, okay, there's a point that it jumps out of Cisco Live and out of Mandalay Bay and out of Lumen and into another service provider and somewhere else, right? And we're, we have a service dependency. Um, when we do keynotes and we're doing remote shots all the way out to with, with Jacques Cousteau out in uh, uh, Australia and he's showing some undersea water thing and no oh, cool virtualization technology. It's like, okay, please okay. have this all work. Um, Pre-record. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you want to have the demos go over well. And so knowing ahead of time, and that's probably another part of the planning issue, is making sure that everybody that's doing keynotes and demos and has dependencies with offsite testing services and, and offsite credit card payment processors. Let's make sure that you tell us about that beforehand so that we can be pinging the snot out of things and doing API calls to make sure those gateways are still working, right? Rule number one, never surprise the stage crew. <laughs> the network is part of the stage crew. Mm -hmm. For sure. All access yeah. pass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, it, for stage crew, green room, um, that's usually a special network. That is a network that gets priority. Uh, we definitely want that hardwired, if possible. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's going to be uh, a presenter on stage that needs real live internet access, please make that cabled, or maybe we'll even have a dedicated wireless AP just yeah. for, this, for the podium. <laughs> Uh, things like that. Or why the heck do we have this big of a switch back here when there's only like two or three cables into it? It's like, oh, because it's serving VIP kind because, of you know, service, right? And it's the same switch because we have commonality because our configuration is a template mm -hmm. and we're depending on having the same hardware everywhere. Yep. Um, the other thing you need are a few fire extinguishers. Uh, literal. Um, I can think of a thing I did in Europe where I brought over the equipment from the US to Paris and we had a voltage spike that turned a three-phase UPS into a smoking wreck. And it acted as a really nice fuse saving the 7513 uh, sitting on the other side of it. Um, and I was able to get another UPS in Paris, but I could not have replaced that router. And uh, from the age, from the model that tells you how long ago it was. Besides the fire extinguisher having uh, mouse traps too, we've got a few uh, internet-connected alerting mouse traps to 
reduce the population around our tables. Yeah. Um, Some of these venues. Oh my goodness. Food that's left out. <laughs> yeah. Mice are all over it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rodents chewed fiber is a real issue. Um, mm -hmm. I've started Absolutely. using, I started using armored fiber, armored fiber mm. in some places, uh, just so the little beasties can't chew through it. Uh, you can also get uh, cable sheathing, which is impregnated with stuff that tastes horrible mm -hmm. to the wildlife. So they leave it alone. Yeah. Besides being a, part of the event staff and supporting the knock. I'm, I'm also a technology speaker at our event. And uh, so one year we decided to try to see if Cisco live would let us do a comedy breakout session that are just raw tech. Right. And so I showed pictures of behind the scenes, uh, you know, mice at night, you know, set up a little camera here. People are gone and they're just all over the place eating, eating the food and everything. So people were pretty surprised what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, people are also amazed at the number of bottles of liquor that come out of the knock. Mm. <laughs> You're not supposed to talk about that. Those no. bottles do not exist. The hotel does not want to see them. Yes, there's all kinds of them under the desk. I know. Yeah. Another, another raspberry pie to monitor the temperature of that fridge. Well, <laughs> about 25 years ago at Interop, uh, back when SNMP was first a new thing, and they had an SNMP controlled toaster uh, and an SNMP controlled audio receiver. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of guys said, we need to do an SNMP controlled keg. So they got some strain gauges and wired them up to some real time machine. And yes, you could get the temperature of the keg and the amount of beer left in it via SNMP. <laughs> So we've talked a bit about monitoring the network, uh, and I know, uh, Jason, at Cisco Live, um, the knock was mentioned. It was in some of your tweets and stuff. So, I mean, there's definitely a network operations center idea. What Now, we've all worked in knock environments, I'm going to I'm gonna assume here. Uh, there's screens. We're looking at stuff. There's red-green. There's other stuff. What, what are we actually looking for in a modern event uh, with the knock? It's, is it more than just red-green? More than red, green, I mean, user experience, how things are performing, latencies and, and such that. Um, I mean, obviously, at a Cisco Live event being hosted by Cisco, we're showing off our commercial management tools, right? The DNA centers of the world and crosswork, things of that nature. I have the opportunity to try to augment and, and integrate some of the other open source solutions and, and other connectivity we have with NetApp for their ONTAP services, vCenter. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and Kubernetes cluster and just monitor end-to-end -end IT services. So get, get beyond just this wiring house into the compute and application side of things. And, you know, there, there are situations when we started looking at having 100 gig links and 400 gig links, are we looking at optical transceiver power levels, right? It's not just good enough to say interface is up. We want to know about all 16 lanes going through that optical fiber. So a, da a dashboard you may have seen new this year was uh, using some streaming telemetry capabilities where we're pulling off the transmit receives of every um, optical lane that we're, we're transmitting and receiving and putting it up there on a, you know, Influx DB and Grafana dashboard. People are like, oh, that's pretty cool. And the things that we end up building to fill in the gaps 
eventually fall into our commercial products years later, right? Well, you're highlighting something interesting here, Jason, which is you have a mature event setup. You're rolling things in and racks off trucks with servers that have been pre-provisioned and you kind of know from experience having done the event the sort of things you want to monitor as opposed to going into a smaller event with maybe a smaller team and maybe a new event. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Jim, I, is your monitoring situation, is, is it as robust as what Jason is describing? No, not at all. Um, a lot of events, it, you know, it, it's a very small crew. Uh, it's often all volunteer. Uh, there's usually no funding. Uh, there's barely funding to make the network work. Um, there isn't funding to buy any tools to monitor it. So we end up using a, a lot of open source stuff, uh, Libra yeah. NMS, Nagios, yeah. um, down and dirty things, you know, uh, DNS query monitoring, looking at query volume, uh, DHCP lease volume, um, you know, good old, you know, look at your interface, speeds, whether it's LibreNMS or, you know, even uh, RRD tool based things, even good old MRTG. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes I may have a laptop with a VM that does some of these things for me in addition to whatever is on site. Um, some of the folks at the scalable events that I uh, work on, uh, we've been talking about, uh, you know, putting together something semi-permanent using some Pelican cases and a bunch of Raspberry Pis. Um, and, uh, you know, that'll happen someday. But you're still uh, describing proactive uh, monitoring. You, you're canary in the coal mine kind of stuff where you're trying to yeah. stay ahead of problems. It, yes. You have to treat an event network as any other production network mm. for that purpose. And I will admit to having a Raspberry Pi with a SSD on it that's got half a dozen of the tools we've just talked about that I take with me when I do something. And if everything else breaks, I plug it in. I've got my tool set right there. Mm. Yeah. They're versatile. Uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, even, even to have emergency things standing by, like, uh, uh, I can tell you that there was once an event where uh, everything blew up as far as DHCP, and uh, I wasn't even on the event staff for the network that year, but uh, all of a sudden, my little uh, Linux-based um, Asus EEE PC became the DHCP server for the entire event uh, for the rest of the day. Okay. Um, <laughs> until you've been bloodied, the first time, the second time, the third time, you don't really know what you need. Uh, by the time you've punched in the snoot five or six times, you start going places with a bag full of tricks so that no matter what's there or not, you have what you need to make it happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I routinely show up with a bag of optics, a box of optics of you know, stuff that you may not even need, like, you know, who the hell needs a multi-mode one gig uh, SFP these days? Oh, but uh, wait. We, Cisco coded. Until you need yeah, it. Yeah. Until you need it. Uh, you know, uh, little weird adapters uh, like, hey, how about some SC to LC, you know, female? Because um, you find all these weird things in, in wiring closets, um, uh, you, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Console cables. Hmm. Half a dozen USB to RJ45 cables and the little boot. I don't know about the other guys, but 
uh, one of my uses for Raspberry Pis is a Pi W with an RS-232 port screwed into the end of it. And I'll just bury those on consoles because dollars to donuts, somebody forgot to bring a console server. Yep. One of, one of my diverse uses of the Pi is to set up a Stratum one-time server with GPS module, the GPS mm-hmm. hat that goes on the Raspberry Pi, an extension uh, GPS antenna hockey puck that goes in the window somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, it recompiled the uh, NTP daemon to handle pulse per second. Okay. Off of the off of the <laughs> chip, and all of a sudden we're going back to square wave, and we're getting down into really tight timing, and we provide that to all our equipment and the uh, option for anybody who wants it. So. Okay, it's a CDMA receiver for me, <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, the other thing which I would pull Jason and James on is you're at an event, you're just some random passerby. Uh, something goes seriously pear-shaped. Uh, how long before you put on your cape and swoop in? We've all done it. Cape wears, capes being worn all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're monitoring, uh, somebody else's optimize. Event. Oh, somebody else's event, some adjacent event that, that happens. We've had, you know, wonderful opportunities to collaborate with other technology shows and, show what we're doing and go share the love with, you know, Oracle and Apple or other shows. Um, so it's, it's been nice. They come and visit us. We go visit them. What's the process for tearing the network down when the event is over? Snips. Um, the venue loves us for leaving miles and miles of cable because uh, we're trying to get out there pretty quick. So a little 35 uh, 60 CG switch with 10 ports, fanless, you know, just snip, 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 leave the RJ 45 caps in <laughs> and then just put it in a shipping container. Uh, Cause we're not going to pull all that cable up, especially when it's been taped down and, and it's all messy once it's been taped. Right. So uh, you, <laughs> you take the stuff that you want to save, put it into your shipping containers. Um, and then you write a check to the union uh electricians who are going to go in and get the tape off the floor and recycle the cable Mm. basically everything from the switches on out is expendable Mm. it's a horrible not very environmentally friendly thought but the reality is it's already custom cut and you know it's trashed You've got fiber that's up, and instead of Velcro, it's been put in by wrist Armstrong and five millimeter tie wraps and crushed. Can't use it anywhere else. So, um, pallets you show up pallets of one meter, three meter, five meter, 10, 20, you know, 50 meter cables, and like, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to take this Raspberry Pi over here near the window, and I need to get it to where it can get power over Ethernet. You know, okay, well, I think I need a 10 meter cable. So go, go grab it and then, you know, run it out to where you need it and, and tape it down and try to hide it as much as possible behind some it, signage or whatever, a plant. So it, nobody just thinks, it, oh, I'm going to take this. This, right? this approach is there's so much cable carnage that's left behind. It's a little like, wow, I wouldn't have expected that. But you're up against the clock. You got to get yeah. in, get everything stood up, and then you got to get out of there. Either go to the next event or at least mm-hmm. clear the decks for whoever's coming in behind you. Yeah. I, I have I, one I, that. Amusing anecdote, in 1993, uh, Interop was at the Moscone, 
and it moved out and the 1993 World Science Fiction Convention moved in and half a dozen people were on the crew on both sides, hmm. but couldn't touch each other's gear. So he had a four hour window to move one out and an eight hour window to move the other one. Um, the other thing with this sort of thing is it ain't cheap. That's something that people don't take into consideration is it costs a lot of money for the material and a lot of money for the labor. Because depending on where you are, you may Dealing be able to pull your shops. own cable. Yeah. Yeah. Or you, you might you, you have hit, to hire it out. You hit the Javits and yeah. in New York City, it yeah. Could be harmful to your health to try and even carry your briefcase in. Yeah. Yeah, you're making a point. There'll be a union thug there that is enforcing uh, their their right to do that work, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the smaller venues are generally more friendly, um, and they may not even have staff. Uh, a lot of the smaller events I work, it's all volunteer. Uh, we actually tend to use pre-made cable assemblies. Uh, you know, a hundred foot. Cat 5e cables with RJ45 couplers. Yeah, it's not awesome, but we actually do reuse them. Um, and when you have, you know, volunteer labor, uh, you can go out and collect all that stuff mm -hmm. and bring it back. Uh, sometimes, you know, have, a, have some uh, duplex zip cord, like a, you know, 500 meter spool that uh, gets used as needed and recycled as needed. Um, yeah stuff like that uh yeah. the other thing is 14 foot 14 inches is a magic number 14 foot 14 inches you said for 14 foot four inches what, what did you just say there yeah 14 14 okay why because is that magic that's the legal clearance for a semi-tractor in the united states you want everything hung so that when somebody drives a tractor trailer onto the show floor they don't tear your network down hmm well, gentlemen, we are at the end of time here. So uh, not the end of all time, just the end of the time for this podcast. Yes. And I thought we would go around the table so that if people want to contact you on the Internet, read your blogs, read whatever books you've published, anything else that you wish to pitch like that, you have the opportunity. Uh, Jim Troutman, let's uh, start with you. Well, as has been previously uh, established, I spend way too much time on Twitter I am uh, at Troutman on Twitter and easy to find most places. Uh, I talk a lot about broadband and internet and, and other things that I have a passion for. Excellent. Thanks for joining us today, Jim, and for uh, helping uh, seed this idea. This, this podcast is partly your fault, so thank you for that. Uh, Alex, you next. Um, you, uh, I'm actually on LinkedIn, and that's it for social media. You can just find me by name and uh, happy to respond. Alex Latsko. Okay. Thank you very much. And Let's then Jason thank Davis. You. Yep. So I'm on Twitter, uh, SNMP guy. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, Jason C. Davis. And you're welcome to also hit me up on email, uh, jadavis at cisco.com. Great stuff. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Thanks to you for listening. This is a longer show than we've been doing uh, lately, but uh, we had a lot of uh, a lot of fun stories and a lot of things to share. So I hope you enjoyed 
this podcast episode. If you like this kind of thing, hey, we got a lot more free technical podcasts along with our community blog, all of that at packetpushers.net. If heavy networking is the only podcast you listen to, you're missing out. We got lots of other podcasts, lots of other written content, white papers. We have a YouTube channel and and essentially everything's free because the way Packet Pushers does what we do, we have sponsors that come on that uh, put in advertisements or they'll sponsor a show and that, that pays for everything so that you can consume it all for free. Keep up with what we're doing on Twitter. We're at Packet Pushers, and we are on LinkedIn as well. And uh, last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.